0: Hi, this is Norman Horn, founder of LCI. We are excited to announce that the LCI team is going to be attending Freedom Fest this July 13th through 16th in Las Vegas, Nevada. We're going to have an exhibitor booth and a breakout session where we will be talking with everybody we can about how to make the Christian case for a free society. Find out more about LCI's participation at Freedom Fest by going to libertarianchristians.com/events. And this week, I also have for you another episode where Kerry Baldwin was interviewed about the very important topic of abortion, we're sharing this because it's really critical that we hear all kinds of responses to the different criticisms or questions or angles that other libertarians might have for somebody like Carrie, who is one of the best libertarian Christian reasoners out there on the topic. So this particular person is Jose Gallison. He hosts the show No Way Jose, and Carrie spent about an hour with him talking about different issues. Jose is not a Christian, and so doesn't quite share the same angle on things that Carrie does, but he asks some really insightful questions. So at a critical time where it's important for us to keep hearing about this issue from a libertarian Christian perspective, we're sharing with you yet again another Carrie Baldwin interview. I know you're going to enjoy this episode.
1: Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. Today, my guest is Carrie Baldwin. So anyone's familiar with Carrie Baldwin's work knows this will be abortion. You know, given the timing with the Roe v. Wade and all that. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> All right, with that, let's get carry on. Hey, what's up, Carrie?
2: Hi, Jose. How are you?
1: Good. Glad to have you on. I mean, topic's a little bit more somber, but we can keep it light to some extent. Sure. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: If you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to my audience so they know who you are and what you're about.
2: Sure. So, my name is Carrie Baldwin. My website is mirrorliberty.com. I'm an independent researcher and writer with a de- degree in philosophy. My mission with Mere Liberty is to challenge and rethink prevailing paradigms in politics, religion, and culture. So I write from a theologically reformed perspective and a philosophically libertarian perspective. I'm also on staff with the Libertarian Christian Institute and a contributor there. I'm the co-author of a book called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions, and I'm best well known for my debate at the Soho Forum with Walter Block about this very topic. So I think that pretty much sums it up.
1: Yeah, uh, it's probably one of my least favorite libertarian theories is (laughs) (laughs) evictionism. I love Walter, but he's wrong on that one. I like Walter a lot too, but I I don't understand the thinking that's, a don't know, that great. I don't think anyone's going to argue that the idea that if you can take him out of the womb and, you know, take care of him, that that wouldn't be a good thing. Obviously, the issue is, I think a lot of people get enamored with the futurism of it and Mm -hmm. then don't realize, okay, but the flip side is like, but if they're not, they die. Like, is this de facto murder?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting because as I learned Walter Block's position, it, it occurred to me, you know, he first wrote that way back in the 70s, like after Roe v. Wade was decided. And I realized that it's really just a defense of Roe v. Wade in libertarian terms. Because Roe v. Wade didn't allow for abortion post viability either. A lot of people don't realize that. But they also used to do abortions very differently back then, which was sort of aligned with what he described as eviction. They did induction abortions, which means that they just induced a woman early and she delivered a live baby who would then suffocate. And that's how they did abortions. Now they do them very differently. And so I don't think that Walter's argument, even with eviction, if you want to go along with it, I don't think that it works with the methods of abortion now.
1: Yeah. The funny thing about it too, is like, I don't feel like it's that novel if you really think about it. Cause I mean, obviously I don't have any poll numbers to back this up, but it's just my gut instinct is that when you talk to most pro-choicers or pro-choicers or pro-choice people, I feel like it's weird to call them pro-choicers.
2: Pro-choicers, yes. <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> but, People of that ilk usually most of them don't argue for once they're viable. Most of them, that's when they start feeling icky about it. And they're like, "Well, I don't know." And and those are just usually your normal people who haven't really thought about it too deeply, and they mm-hmm. just that's just kind of their like to them. And before it's able to live outside the womb in their head, it's kind of just not a person to some extent. And I think that's just your normal people. And so to me, like the evictionism is just kind of like a big brain version of that. Like you're not really arguing for much different than what a normal person is arguing for, anyway. So right, like, yeah. I don't know. But I mean, whatever, I'm not here to make fun of Arthur Block. Uh, fictionism always comes up in these circles. and It, yeah. I, it, it irks me to no end. Because it's like this compromise that's uh, just like most compromises. It like, right. doesn't isn't really any good. <laughs> it
2: doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs>
1: uh, all right. Being as you come from the religious angle, I want to start out with that. Uh, let you know I'm, I'm an atheist. Uh, I'm not one of those cringy ones. I don't really care too much to argue about it. And uh, I actually grew up in the church. And one of the biggest things I've hated – with this, like, past week with all the abortion stuff, is seeing all the religious people. I mean, obviously, not all of these people. It's actually, it's more like the prominent, big. I don't know. Obviously, people put a microscope on it to some extent. So I'm sure it's not representative of the larger group. But you see a lot of people coming out in the religious circles being like, oh, you know, we're here for a woman's right to choose, blah, 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 etc. And I don't know. That really rubs me the wrong way because. I'd be hard pressed to actually argue scripture right now, but I just remember growing up in the church. This was never the the spirit of anything of that I ever experienced. Like that's not to say that the characterizations that the pro-choice people will give of religious people, obviously those are flawed. I think most people in church aren't against abortion because they hate women or something stupid. It's just because they find it to be immoral and killing a baby, which is pretty reasonable because I agree with that. But I want to get the religious argument. Because I actually think it's important. While I'm not a religious individual, I would like to hear your religious argument against it. We don't have to dwell on this for too long. So if you have a quick and dirty, like why from a religious perspective, abortion's not okay.
2: Well, that's interesting. So it's funny because I don't make a religious (laughs) argument when it comes to this topic. In fact, I intentionally avoided the religious argument. I mean, the religious argument is very easy. We were created by God you know human beings are created by God we're created in God's image and you know scripture says that we were knit together in the womb and that he knew us from that point so it's actually fairly simple and straightforward it's easy for a christian to wrap their head around the reason why i don't use a religious argument though is because it's also the easiest one to shoot down all you have <laughs> to say is well i'm not a christian <laughs> i don't believe in god so At any rate, I mean, that's fundamentally the argument is, you know, we're created by God. We're image bearers of God. He says, don't kill other image bearers of God. And that's it.
1: Yeah. Now, the second part of this line of questioning is I'm wondering if you've ever even actually heard a, not to say it convinced you, but a reasonable argument from a religious perspective for pro-choice. Because the only, I've gone on rabbit trails where I kind of get into like religious stuff and get interested in it. I know, especially in Catholicism, sometimes it becomes arguing when someone gets a soul or something along those lines. and That becomes a determining like when it's okay to, if it's okay to abort or whatever. And you can get in the weeds and get really weird, but I'm just curious if you've ever even heard one because I haven't heard one that's convinced me when I was religious and after being religious, none of them really seem to be, you know, hold up to snuff.
2: Yeah, well, I would say that the most prominent Christian quote unquote. <laughs> There's actually a woman, her name is Beverly Wildung Harrison. I don't think she's alive anymore. She was known as the mother of Christian feminist ethics. And she wrote a book about, let's see, I think the title's called Our Right to Choose. And she made an argument. It's mostly a philosophical one, but she tried to fit in Christian thought into it. Her argument was that God had created women to be able to choose who will be born. So I would say, well, a woman has a right to choose whether she'll use her body to become a mother, right? That involves a choice to have sex, that involves a choice to get married. But you know, I disagree with her that God gave us a divine right to determine who will be born. But she's really the one that paved the way, I think, for a Christian feminist view. Most of the arguments, though, from a Christian perspective for the pro-choice side is more along the lines of safe, legal, and rare, which is the Hillary Clinton mantra. And that actually doesn't work out at all. I have a podcast episode on my podcast, Dare to Think, where I actually deconstruct that entire argument, that safe, legal, and rare argument. And I basically say, look, if you are arguing in favor of Marginalized groups, the unborn falls into each one of those marginalized groups, right? You want to protect the poor and the minority and the female and all of these other groups, but what about the poor baby and the minority baby and the female baby? Like it becomes really self defeating. So I've never seen a Christian argument for abortion that is persuasive in the slightest. I do think that. Will Dung-Harrison has some interesting thoughts when it comes to bodily autonomy, which I'm very much in favor of, but she overstates her claim by saying that women have a right to determine who will be born.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously you can, uh, what's the, uh, absurdum, God, I can I usually oh, I can say. Uh, argument ad absurdum. There you go. Ad absurdum. I couldn't think yeah. of the, the beginning of the ad part. I mean, you could add absurdum to that, and that's easy. You can just be like, well, I have the divine yeah. right, deserves to get to live. And, I, you know, I if I killed that guy, but that's, it just seems to be a workaround argument. Unless some, I'm assuming maybe he, she had scripture to back it up of some sort. I'm assuming probably misinterpreted, but.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty misinterpreted. I mean, she's basically arguing for matriarchy. And this is one thing that I point out with my libertarian argument is if libertarians believe that women have a right to choose, who will be born and who won't, then that's matriarchy. That's not libertarianism. All
1: right. I have a super chat to bring up. It's silly. It's Jacob Winograd. He <laughs> paid me money. So I'm a capitalist, and that's how this thing works. Uh, Hi, Carrie, Jacob. Is, Carrie is a white woman who must not be stopped. <laughs> so there you go. I'm a very
2: white woman. <laughs>
1: yes. That's a, if you're unaware, that's a meme that went around about a few months ago, and, and Daniel's still riding to the ground. So
2: oh, that's so, funny. <laughs> or
1: Jacob. His name throws me off all the time. I call him Daniel. I know he's Jacob. Me and him are, g- are good friends. I just had him on my show the other day. But, yeah. Um, yeah. He's great. Yeah. All right. I actually was going to kind of reverse this. I kind of want to give you my take because actually, I've been familiar with work the past couple of days. I checked out more of your work, and there's a lot of overlap in me and you's argumentation here, but there's some minor differences. So I want to just quickly give you mine perspective, sure. and then I guess we'll just kind of jump off from there, and you can kind of give me critiques. By the way, for those in the chat, feel free to ask questions, and stuff, because this is a there's a lot of different angles to this, and we can, I have no problem bringing it up. You don't have to super chat, but I mean, if you do super chat, I'll definitely bring it up because that's how this works. All right, here is where I'm coming from. I'm gonna try to be as concise as possible. I mean, I told you I'm an atheist, so you know I don't have. I mean, you can kind of probably guess. I don't really buy into the natural law argument, but I, I kind of I guess I'm in a certain sense I come from like a Friedman-ish type way. But basically, I think the the most conducive way to have like the greatest degree of harmony, essentially, would be a libertarian private property legal framework, something along those lines. And I think a separate human is created when it has its own separate genetic code, essentially, something along those lines. By the way, this is not you. I'm sure you're of Wimmer knowledgeable in this stuff. This is kind of my basic bullet points. At that point, it has its own property rights. It was created by the mother and the father. And so I see that in my head as some sort of like an implicit contract, if you will, of some sort. The example I like to use would be like if I went to a restaurant, sat down, waiter came to me, is like, "What would you like to eat?" I ordered, ate everything. At the end of the day, he gave me a bill, and I was like, "What? You expect me to pay?" Like, <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. like it was pretty obvious what was happening here, and any reasonable person who's ever been in a restaurant can understand mm-hmm. that. Another example with abortions, you know, to put in private property terms would be kind of like if I invited someone, and this even works in this situation because you literally did the act that created the human being. Uh, and you bring them up on a, a hot air balloon and then you decide once you're in the air, you know, I, I I don't, you know what? I don't think I want you in this balloon anymore. You need to get out. Like, I think at some point you do have some sort of positive right of like, I need to wait till I bring them back. If you want to call it a positive right, I think maybe that's a misuse of it, but sure, call it a private right if that's what makes it work for you. Now, with this line of argumentation, I think this then makes it, in my opinion, I may be wrong, that... In cases of rape, or cases where, say, it's like underage children, or you know, maybe mental retardation, you could make a case that they weren't aware of what they were doing, and maybe you can make some sort of case for why an abortion, while unfortunate, could be considered acceptable. Because while you, it wouldn't be fair to call the baby an aggressor; it's still doing harm in some sense to the female's body. They don't want it there. I mean, and they had no part in bringing it into the situation. So yes, the child's not an aggressor, but it's a thing causing her harm, and I think it's more than fair, and I'm sure this is probably where we come at odds. And by the way, it's not things I feel strongly about, <laughs> I'm Very okay. much a novice, so I'm not going to get hurt. And we can get into the legal stuff in the bit, because I think you actually have way more say than I do. That's kind of where the legal side of this is where it really kind of is like, I draw a blank, because it does get weird, because it's mm-hmm. the victim aspect, like you killed mm-hmm. the victim, and... Unless you have a father who wanted it, you get into a weird, like, how do we do restitution? But we Mm -hmm. we won't get into that. That's my, why I'm basically a pro-lifer, if you want to call me that. Although I don't necessarily advocate for anti-abortion laws or whatever. So, but I'm also not necessarily against them either.
2: (laughs) Right. I I hear you. I hear you.
1: So that's my bullet points. And I think it has a lot of similar argumentation, although you take a couple different angles and end up with similar conclusions, except for the rape thing. That's the biggest, I think, place where we divert from. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll start out with this, actually. I was introduced to the notion of a pro-life libertarian. Mm, Must have been like, well, it's probably been more like 15 years ago now. The proprietor of the pro-life libertarian's website was an atheist. I don't know if they're still active on that site or not, but that's how I first found out about it. And it's interesting because it was at about that time that I was also introduced to a pagan, like practicing Wiccan pro-lifer. So that was the first time where I was like, oh, this isn't a Christian thing. (laughs) So at any rate, I guess I'll start with the natural law theory. That's one place where We are distinct. And I'd say, you know, Murray Rothbard was also an atheist, although he was married to a Presbyterian. Yeah. And he argued for a kind of natural law theory that didn't necessarily require a belief in God. Yeah. Right. It was basically, if this is self-evident from nature, then there's a norm to be derived here, right? There's a natural law to be derived. And so I think that one of the main problems with the abortion debate, especially among libertarians, is that they've looked at the situation between the woman and her offspring as being something that we need to apply a law to rather than derive a law from. Mm -hmm. And so that's where my position is unique, is because I'm looking at this look, humanity is not just man qua man. Right, mankind qua male, we have to look at it as mankind qua woman and mankind qua offspring because human beings are all three. And so, mankind qua woman teaches us something that we haven't been able to learn from mankind qua man. So, at any rate, my argument with this has to do with the fact that every single human being originates from within the mother's womb. Every single human being does. And so it's very difficult to apply these analogies. You know, Walter is very famous for his his crazy analogies, but none of them work because they're not like the situation with new offspring, which is that's the point of emergence, right? Human beings don't emerge into any other place in the world. They don't come into existence even, I remember in the Was it the debate? I think it was after the debate. Somebody had asked me, well, what if we have technology like in Star Trek and you can transport people? Isn't that sort of the same thing? And it's no, because even if you look at that technology, that person has originated from somewhere else, right? And so before intercourse, before conception, that human being doesn't exist anywhere. It wasn't put in the mother. It was created in the mother. It emerges in the mother. So we're looking at something that is actually a place where we derive a norm from rather than apply mm-hmm. a norm to. So that's number one.
1: I number do you want to comment on that. I will say okay. yeah, I 100% agree. that if, Obviously, I say I don't necessarily come from a natural law theory type perspective. But mm-hmm. if you're going to go down that line of logic, it's, it is kind of funny that that was where Rothbard's argumentation was based in and he still ended up arguing the opposite. Because, I mean, what's more natural than childbirth? I mean, so, but yeah.
2: Yeah, I would say, you know, from reading Rothbard, I'd say Rothbard's motivation was to ensure the self-ownership of the woman. And I don't really find fault with that. I've mentioned before, the self-ownership of the woman matters, right? Her bodily autonomy, her agency matters. And this is where I think the conventional pro-life side really, really messes up. And to their detriment, by the way, it's completely unhelpful. So at any rate, number one, the fetus emerges. This is where every human being emerges from. And even if you're going to talk about, say, in vitro fertilization, that's still an action taken by both a father and a mother. Even if we're only talking about the gamete cells that they're providing, it's still an action being taken by two people in order to create a new life. So this is a very unique situation we should be deriving a normative law from.
0: Hi, everyone. I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And You can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast.
2: Let's see. What was your next point? Because I forget
1: my next bullet point was a separate human has created the point it as its own separate genetic code, which I mean, you might get a little more of the science there. I will say too, that just to add a little comment is not necessarily pertinent, but I do think it kind of, it relates to this and uh, something I think people should be keen on when they're noticing people talk about the subject. A lot of people will bring in the word person or personhood. And mm-hmm. it, you have to be very clear, what are we talking about here? Because uh, a lot of times people use person or personhood with their, the most arbitrary of definitions that they just made up on the spot. I just go simple with it because it's like I realize that's insanely vague. And I just go human being. That's a human being. At what point can we call this a human being? And that's, to me the most concise place to put it. But go on.
2: Yeah. So what I say is that from the moment conception is complete, so conception is a process that actually takes three days. It's not a moment like we used to think. But from the moment conception is complete you have a new, unique, living human. And I intentionally leave out the being part because the being is the person. And the reason why I leave this out, I don't make a personhood argument either. The reason why I leave this out is because the personhood debate is a metaphysical one. It's not a legal argument. And the United States has had this legal debate about whether you can have a human who is not a person. We've been through this and it was a nightmare. And we should never revisit that. So as far as the law is concerned, if you have a human, then they have rights. So what I'm arguing from the libertarian position is not that this is a person. I leave that question aside and say, we can debate that all you want. Is this a rights-bearing individual? And so the two requirements for a rights-bearing individual, according to Rothbard, is that number one, you're human. And number two, you have direct and immediate control over or possession over your own body. And yeah, the science is really interesting on this because, and I don't think that you need the science, but it's really helpful. The science is really interesting on this because during that process of conception, that process is there so that the instructions that the cell is following switch from mother to offspring. And at the end of that, what they find is the fetus, the offspring, their development is completely self-directed. It's autonomous and self-directed. And so that's very important because it's not mom who develops the baby. It's the baby who develops itself within the mother. So the placenta and the umbilical cord both belong to baby. They're created by baby. And we do know that because of the DNA. I do caution people that it's not merely the presence of DNA, though that is the deciding factor on this. I mean, you can take a piece of your own DNA right now, right? And mm-hmm. sort of set it aside. And that's not another Jose, right? Yeah. And you right? Can, There could
1: even be genetic mutations within it. So you could say it's a separate genetic code. Right. People could get really... If you had a few lawyers in here, they could go to town, uh, obviously. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and it does... Raise an interesting question. You know, it raises all kinds of interesting questions about cloning and whether or not, like, you know, you get that genetic testing done. And does that company now, like, own a part of you? Like, it's interesting the implications for all that is concerned. So, yeah, I don't make an argument for personhood. In fact, it's really interesting. It's the pro lifers now who try to, or at least they were trying to pass personhood laws. I think that they've left that behind and are now on these heartbeat laws. But I remember cautioning pro-lifers about this because, oh well, again, you don't want the state deciding, defining what a person is apart from a human. That's a recipe for disaster and rights violations all over the place. Oh, there was something I was going to say and I totally forgot it.
1: (laughs) By the way, I see you in the chat, Daniel. We will get into the law aspect, but I just feel like that feels more appropriate at the end.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I know what I was going to say. The personhood argument was actually started by a woman by the name of Marianne Warren, who is a pro-choicer. And so she's the one that, in fact, somebody was debating this on Twitter today. They were like, oh, sentience is what gives you personhood. Well, it's an argument from Marianne Warren and she actually had like six or seven different criteria that she had just arbitrarily came up with (laughs) as criteria for personhood. And what's interesting about her argument is that it doesn't even apply to born individuals. And so that's a problem. So anybody who's arguing for these particular characteristics, sentience or emotionality or anything like that, it doesn't actually work for born people. And so that's your big red flag that nope, this isn't the ground for for human rights.
1: <laughs> yeah. That yeah, that definitely opens a Pandora's box if you uh <laughs> follow the yeah. logic to its end. <laughs> um. Then I guess the next point that falls that uh, I kind of went into is the fact that the child was created by the act of, of a, I mean, this is assuming contingent on that it was a consensual act of a mother and father. And yes, you may not have meant to do it, but anyone, any human being who understands, you know, how reproductive organs operate should know that when you have sex, there's always a chance, no matter how careful you are. I mean, I guess within reason. If you have your ovaries removed or something, it's probably not happening. But I mean, for the most part, you you can be reasonable and like we know how this works. Like, Mm -hmm. so there is an act you're doing that is very likely to, or not very likely. There's a chance that it'll do it. I mean, by the way, I'm I'm someone who I have a twelve year old, I have a nine year old, both girls, been married over a decade. I. But I mean, and I, before I got married, I mean, I fooled around, but I always knew it was like, I'm taking a risk here. Like, I mean, I know it's a dude's perspective, but like, it's the honest perspective. Like like, I always knew there could be a call and uh, it's time to get (laughs) responsible.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I mean, definitely what you have going on here. And I've seen this argument too before that a woman who has sex is inviting the offspring into her body, or a woman who has sex is already consented to being pregnant. I think that those aren't true things to say. And Mm -hmm. the reason why I say that is because a woman who consciously takes birth control has withdrawn her consent for pregnancy. Right. Mm. She's by taking that birth control, she's saying, No, I don't actually want to be pregnant. I want to do this act. I don't want to be pregnant. So, those are two different things. And I think that we should be very careful about that. As I said, a woman's agency matters. And it doesn't serve any of us any good to diminish it in any way. However, and this is something that Ludwig von Mises talks about in Human Action that is, is that we are not free. Well, and he doesn't use these exact words, but essentially we're not free from the consequences of our actions. And that goes for the actions that we take where we don't know what the outcome is. And the reason why that's the case is because most actions that we take, we don't know what the outcome is going to be, right? Even if you do engage in sexual intercourse, like, if you know that there's a possibility, that's one thing, but you don't know that pregnancy is actually going to occur as a consequence, right? You have infertile couples, for example, who try and try and try and their actions don't result in that consequence. So what I say is that conception is an involuntary process that can result from intercourse. And as long as the choice for intercourse was volitional, you know, in other words, that woman made a choice to have sex whether she knew what the consequences were going to be or not she is now responsible for the consequences of those actions now she can help herself by being informed right by learning something about sex by learning something about the consequences by learning something about you know motherhood about birth control like she can inform herself and you know decide whether that's a risk worth taking but it's still a risk right And she's not free from the consequences of her actions. So where volitional intercourse has taken place, if she gets pregnant, she is then responsible for the result. And that incidentally means that there's no force involved. The pro-choice side wants to say, oh, you're forcing me to carry a baby. Well, no, there's no force. The baby isn't an an actor. It can't, it didn't have any choice in, in coming into being. None of us did. It's not taking an action against you. So it's not a violation of the non-aggression principle. Nobody's forcing you. Now, in the case of rape, it is true that somebody is forcing you to carry a child. But in that case, we have to, and I use this in the Walter Block debate, we have to go back to the Robinson Crusoe thought experiment. You take away the technology for Birth control, you take away the state or any civil governance, any, you know, the church, anybody who might come along and try to say that there's a moral obligation for her to carry that baby. You take away all of that and you just have a man and a woman on the island. If that man rapes that woman, she's stuck with that baby until she gives birth. So there's actually a natural limitation that's created on her that natural limitation occurs, whether it's volitional or not. But in the case of rape, the force involved is from the rapist. And the reason why I argue that abortion shouldn't be allowed in the case of rape is because that lets the rapist off the hook. That lets him scoot his way out the back door and leave the woman with the baby. And that's a problem. Because that's saying that in our current criminal justice system reflects that. Saying that rape is just this this passive act. It's already passed, it's gone. I'm very sorry that you're pregnant, but that's it. It's really interesting that rape is one of the only violent crimes where judges will ask if the woman invited it. <laughs> you know, when somebody is murdered or, you know, has their property stolen, nobody says, well. Were you asking for it maybe just a little bit? Like nobody does that, but they do it with rape cases. So at any rate, I'm opposed to abortion in the case of rape because it lets the rapist off the hook. Incidentally, when legal abortion was being advocated for with second wave feminism, it wasn't the feminists initially who wanted abortion to be legalized. It was a group of men, Hugh Hefner was one of them, who wanted to make abortion legal so that they could have consequence-free sex. And somehow that got translated into, oh, the sexual revolution is about women wanting to have consequence-free sex. And there were certainly feminists that jumped on board with Hugh Hefner and, and his guys, but that was started by small group of men. I don't want to lump all men into that, but it was a small group of men who wanted to get off the hook for being responsible as a father. So, you know, incidentally, if we recognize the rights of the fetus, the fact that it's a rights-bearing individual, we get a very clear picture of what rape is. We get a very clear picture of what's going on with the woman. The woman's an owner of a means of production, right? Rape isn't just non-consensual sex, right? That's why it seems like it's a passing thing. Oh, well, you know, there's lots of things that we don't give our consent for or that we arbitrarily or haphazardly give our consent for in like, you know, terms and conditions on an app. It's like, read this whole thing before you accept this app. Okay. We do that all the time and it's a very passing moment. But if the fetus is a rights-bearing individual Then the woman is an owner of a means of production, and it's the ultimate means of production. If the woman's an owner of a means of production, then that means that rape is not just about consent. Rape is invasion, it's usurpation, it's enslavement. I mentioned on the Bob Murphy show that it is literally the manifestation of war on the individual. And I don't mean that in a metaphorical sense, I mean that in a very literal sense. Now, metaphorically, you might say that war is the rape of a nation. But we wouldn't be able to say that without being able to establish what rape is on the individual. But extended from that, then we would actually be able to figure out where father's rights come into the picture. And I know that that's a very important issue for a lot of libertarian men who've been disenchanted with the feminist movements. And child custody laws and family courts and all of those nightmares. And even those men who know women who aborted their offspring and didn't want their child aborted. So I haven't actually worked that out, but I know that my view has implications for that that need to be worked out.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, everyone. If you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters and there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer, you know, free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute, because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contributions so that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year so even if it's as little as 5 10 bucks a month that really helps us a lot you know that really adds up when more and more people do it so we appreciate all of your support whether it's sharing liking reviewing and doing all that but we of course appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute
1: all right well i think we kind of covered you you kind of pushed back a little bit on a lot of my points there i will say The rape thing for me is probably the part where I struggle the most. I just only come to that conclusion because I kind of go sort of the contract theory way, whereas you're coming from a more natural law. I will say the take you've given on why abortion is permissible through rape obviously is contingent on uh, on a certain criminal justice system to some extent being in place, which we don't necessarily have. Yeah. I find that to be the most satisfactory answer I've ever gotten for why that would be okay. Because, yeah, it definitely is like a non-consensual thing you know. that you were, I mean, I get it. It wasn't the baby who did it to you, but to some extent, it is like you're being harmed and you have the means to reduce the harm. And obviously, I mean, with that comes some consequences and that sucks. And I mean, obviously, when I speak on this, I'm speaking from a legal framework. It's not saying I endorse it in any way, shape or form. I like to think if I was a woman and that happened to me, I would keep it just because it's like, it's another being, another human. Mm -hmm. So it's like, but you know, from a legal libertarian legal perspective, that's why we end up with people like Rothbard who, I mean, I I bet you if you asked him, he'd probably think it's morally reprehensible. He he probably would advocate, I would think in a free society, I guarantee you'd probably say that would be, have more traditional values. And that would probably be one of the reasons why there wouldn't be abortions because it's. Well,
2: I imagine that in a libertarian society, women could insure their bodies against rape so that even if they couldn't get... And I would expect that legally this would be handled in a tort law situation. I have not actually calculated the numbers, but I believe that rape would be considered one of the most expensive crimes. And tort law has been shown to have a deterrence effect. So you probably wouldn't actually have a whole lot of rapes to deal with. But I also imagine that women could insure their bodies so that if a rape occurred and she couldn't get restitution from her rapist she could get an insurance payout i think that would be a wonderful solve to that problem you know the reason why people want to give and i used to believe that rape was an exception the reason why is because when you have empathy for that person who's been victimized in such a way, you do want to relieve their burden in some way, right? And so I can sympathize with the fact that people who allow for this exception want to relieve that burden. I get it. But at the end of the day, this is an issue that requires adjudication. it That's where we need civil governance and women are being, you know, they're left hanging with that. So this is one of those cases where this sort of help, this sort of relieving the burden is actually a greater travesty for the woman. She's not getting justice for the action taken against her.
1: Caleb Brown of Faithful Praxis asked me to ask you about IVF. I don't know if you want to expand on that. I don't know if that... I mean, I, obviously, I'm, I know you know what IVF is, but mm-hmm. I don't know what he means by ask you about it. There are a lot of things to ask.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he's, I think he's asking, I think, and I'm pretty sure he's asked me on Twitter before... I believe what he's asking me is if in vitro fertilization would be permissible in a pro-life libertarian society, let's put it that way. And the issue with IVF is that you have to fertilize multiple eggs at once and you implant some of them and you do it this way because there's an expectation that most will not survive, that only one or two will take. And every now and then you hear these crazy stories about, you know, sextuplets or whatever, where he, a woman gives birth to six or seven babies. Well, that's because all of the fertilized eggs took. So the actually the big question is, what do you do with the eggs that didn't get implanted? Well, those get frozen and they've actually got a name for them. I can't remember what the name is for them. Maybe Caleb knows because you can actually adopt these embryos. Sometimes they get frozen. Like if you fertilize, I don't know, 10 eggs and you use five of them and one of them takes, you know, the other four die in the womb. You've got five that are just frozen perpetually until somebody wants them. So the big question is, is it a violation of a person's rights to be kept on ice perpetually until you're useful? And I'd say... It's a very utilitarian way of looking at human beings. And if a fetus is a rights bearing individual from the moment conception is complete, then they have a right to not be frozen, even for a short amount of time. They're being used in that regard. And so I think that's a rights violation. So if there is an IVF procedure in a libertarian society, it could not include. Freezing embryos and that sort of thing. So, all
1: right, let's talk a little bit more about the legal side things. Like, what exactly would we do with a mother in a true free society? You know, not our current one, because really, our current criminal justice system is basically set up to be punitive. Which I think most libertarian legal systems, you know, theoretically, are supposed to be more like a what's a not a recompense? Maybe that's not the wrong word. Restitution. Uh, restitution. Yeah. So. That's usually what most of them argue for, and I agree with that uh, the point isn't to be some you know archaic concept of revenge; it's supposed to be more to make the victim whole again so and I mean obviously, with that becomes the issue with abortion is obviously the victim you killed, and you know being as they're a fetus, they probably don't have a whole lot of people that could take up the mantle of the aggrieved party aside from maybe one of the two people involved in creating it, and obviously maybe the father but so it it gets mm-hmm. in a weird legal quagmire, which with what do we do here? So I'll let you go.
2: Yeah, so if we were even just talking about the American Constitutional Republic, right? That would still be preferable to the police state that we have right now. Pro-lifers, when they talk about criminalizing abortion, there's this sense of moral outrage, right? There's some revenge, some sense of revenge that they want to take with the mother. You know, they want to take some punitive action. And the reality is, is in the constitutional republic, she has a presumption of innocence. She is to be free of searches and seizures. You know, she's got all of these rights of the accused that exist or that are supposed to exist that don't actually exist now In our current paradigm, I mean, that there's some lip service, we'll say. But, you know, when it comes to, say, the war on drugs, all they need is, all the police need is mere suspicion. And that becomes a problem. And the pro choice, I would say pro choice libertarians are right to call this out. There is a concern that a woman who, say, miscarries will get caught up. Somebody will accuse her of having, you know, taken an abortion pill or whatever. And she'll get caught up in the legal system for really no good reason. She didn't commit a crime. And that's very dangerous because a lot of women who miscarry will actually blame themselves and take responsibility when, when they shouldn't. You know, they're not in a good mental health state when they miscarry. And so they will blame themselves. And that is the the last place you want these women to be are siphoned up into a police state in that whole situation. So, you know, when it comes to enforcement, I'm very much anti-authoritarian on that. I don't think that we should use a police state to enforce abortion prohibition. But how would we actually do it? There are two forms of justice or adjudication that i would say are valid one is tort which we've already explained or talked about a little bit i think that this is more appropriate say for you know a physician who gives a woman the two pills used in in a medical abortion right i think in that case that should be used in a tort situation he should have to pay restitution to the grieving party that could be the father that could be i would say any like the woman's parents Any in laws, right? Anybody who has a direct familial connection, I think, would have a legitimate claim. I would say, though, that when it comes to the abortive woman, most women abort for two reasons poverty and bad relationships. And I say bad relationships, but I mean like abusive relationships. I don't mean just, you know, I don't get along with my boyfriend. I mean emotionally, psychologically, and even physically abusive relationships. In that case, She really is in a situation of crisis. When it comes to poverty or a sense of poverty, she might be middle income, but they might be really tight on their household budget and she doesn't feel like they can afford to have the baby and so she'll go and abort. In those situations, I would say that the model, at least the model that I advocate for is the restorative justice model. This is a model that has been really promoted heavily by Matt Kibbe and his wife, from Free the People. They have a documentary called How to Love Your Enemies where they document the restorative justice model that is used in Longmont, Colorado. And they've actually been using it, I think she said, for like two decades. But in this model, you don't have offenders, you have responsible parties. And you do have a victim, but you bring the victim and the responsible party together. It's all voluntary and it's done outside of the state. The... Municipality doesn't operate this it's voluntary. The responsible party and the victim come together in a supervised environment you know they've got volunteers from the community they've got workers who understand the model and they come together and they really talk about you know what harm was actually taking place, what that meant to the victim, but we also get to hear why the responsible party made the decisions that that she did or that he did now i will say that they don't use this model and i think they're right to not use this model in cases of abuse because in that case it's very bad to get in that case the mom's the victim even though she's abortive she's a victim of an abusive spouse and that's very dangerous to bring those two together and so in that case i would say there's a potential tort but you'd have to you know you'd have to work that out At any rate, with the restorative justice model, the aim is not to be punitive. The aim is to restore, restitute, to make the victim as whole as can be. You can never perfectly do that. But it also aims to not destroy people's lives. And a woman who's aborted already feels like her life is destroyed. (laughs) There's no sense in rubbing salt on that wound. So you know, it aims to restore not only the victim, but the responsible party as well so that they don't repeat. And I'd say that one of the most convincing things about the restorative justice model is that it produces such a low recidivism rate, meaning they don't repeat. Our current justice and justice system for violent crime, okay, so this is murder, this is theft, this is rape, arson, whatever else. Our current system is intended to produce deterrence, but it doesn't. It is intended to reduce recidivism, but it's completely ineffective. It creates more trauma. It creates more problems. And it is perpetually more and more expensive. (laughs) Victims are actually having to pay for the incarceration of the person who violated their rights. And that's not justice either. So I'm a huge fan of the restorative justice model. I also think tort is an option. I think some special care would have to be taken in in cases of abusive relationships. But even that, there's a solution to that as well. And if our system is set up to recognize what a woman is, and she's the owner of a means of production, that her bodily autonomy matters, that her agency matters, then I think sticky issues like abuse will be taken care of much more effectively and compassionately.
1: Yeah. Thanks for $5. Uh, dot drywall O. Daniel has a question, uh, which was kind of what I was probably going to sort of get into, but uh, I'll just let this be the segue. What would Kerry say to provincial pro lifers that these forms of justice is not good enough and it's pretty much pro choice? I was basically going to ask you uh, it sounds to me that you don't want any more new laws in the books, at least from the state, but the way I look at it, I mean, I don't know if you agree. I don't want more laws in the books, but it's not something I'm really going to put a whole lot of effort against, you know, arguing against. I mean, it's the same thing with like, I don't know, any other forms of aggression, like theft laws, whatever. While I may not think the state's form of action is the best thing, against, I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time on something that I do see as a form of aggression. I mean, if someone asked me, I'd be like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. But uh, at the end of the day, it still is a form of aggression. And at the very least, they're sort of trying to address it, but I don't think they're going to do it right. But uh, go on.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I would say for those pro lifers who do want to enact legislation i think that the biggest red flag for me is what that legislation says about enforcement and i would say libertarian pro lifers really need to get active on this either in constructing that legislative language in such a way that it it is reforming that enforcement in some way allowing for options such as restorative justice restorative justice and tort are both already being used tort certainly much more than restorative justice, but restorative justice is becoming quite popular. And so, you know, you can have new laws written that say abortion should be illegal. It can even be considered murder. But in the language of the legislation is where we should really be saying no to, you know, war on drugs, sorts of Enforcement and saying yes to restorative justice using those models. I do think Roe v. Wade should be overturned, although this may come as a surprise to pro lifers. I think that Roe v. Wade should be overturned because it's bad for women. And I tell pro choicers this all the time. They like to say that overturning Roe v. Wade will allow for a handmaid's tail scenario, but that's not true. Roe v. Wade puts the woman's liberty interest concerning her body and pregnancy at the, oh, how do they put it? Well, it's subject first to state interest. So Roe v. Wade actually sets the stage for A Handmaid's Tale. We've just not experienced that because the government has been mostly pro-choice. But if it were ever in the state interest to start increasing the population, Roe v. Wade actually gives them the power to do that. So I'm in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade because it subjects a woman's bodily autonomy and agency to the state. And obviously it allows for abortion and that's a problem. But again, I'm an advocate of women's bodily autonomy and agency. So yeah, you can create laws that criminalize abortion, but the enforcement aspect needs to be reformed. Otherwise, there's going to be a huge, huge problem. And I would say in the states, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, and I got to be honest, I'm skeptical that it will be, but there's said to be about 26 states that will automatically criminalize abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned. In those states, pro-life libertarians especially need to be advocating for two things in those states. Number one, criminal justice reform. And number two, deregulating the market because it's the markets that's going to provide all of the life-affirming alternatives that women need to have access to in order to voluntarily not choose abortion.
1: All right. I think unless anyone has any more questions in the thing, we've kind of hit a good point. We're at about an hour now. If you want to go ahead and drop your plugs, it's been a pleasure having you.
2: Yeah, so you can read all of my stuff on mereliberty.com. You can also catch some of my work on libertarianchristians.com that's the libertarian christian institute i also have member support you can find that on my website you can sign up for my email list i am in the process of writing my formal paper to be submitted for peer review on this and i'm giving my monthly members updates as to how that process is going i'm hoping to have it done before the end of the year and that will include my objections, my formal objections to Walter Block. So you can find that all at my website, merleybuddy.com. Right.
1: Awesome. Like I said, it was a pleasure having you. You can follow me on YouTube, all the major audio podcast Odyssey, Twitter at 2020NoWayJose. Uh, if you want to give me money, patreon.com, just no Way Jose 2020 Like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. With that, we are out. Thank you guys for showing up. All right. <laughs> see you guys.